Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Lake campus of Crosswinds Church. It's especially good to have you. And this summer, as I introduced to you last week, we're trying to have a special warm welcome that we're trying to give to our visitors. So if you're a visitor, I really hope that you feel warmly welcomed and warmly greeted this morning. And you may wonder, like, what are we doing having a special focus on increasing the warmth of our welcome here at Crosswinds Church? And actually, it's all growing out of our study in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul talks about the church as a family. It's not in any other organization. This is a place where we love one another, and we care for one another, and we're family with one another. And whenever people show up to your home and they're guests, do you make them feel welcome? Yes, we welcome guests in our home. And so if you're a guest, we certainly hope that you feel welcome here in our church home this morning. Incidentally, I gave you 10 action steps last week that we were going to talk about focusing on for the summer uh, as a way of helping us become more warm and welcoming to people who happen to visit. And the first one that I'm going to review with you today was this. Sit by somebody you don't know, not in the same seat. Now, some of you are going... Oops, I always sit in that seat. That's my pew. Well, you know, all we're simply saying is when you come in the church, if you see somebody you don't know, take the opportunity to sit by them and make them feel warmly welcome. And I can see some of you are already doing that. Well, as I said, we are studying our way through 1 Timothy on both campuses. And we just finished 1 Timothy chapter 5. And the theme of 1 Timothy chapter 5 was honor. And he gave us, Paul gave us a number of ways that Christians are different because we honor people. He talked at the very beginning of the chapter about how we honor one another in the church family. That we honor uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that are older than us. Remember how we treat them like mothers and fathers? We give them care. We give them respect. You can tangibly feel that in a church. And we honor those who are younger than us. And he said, treat them like brothers and sisters, like they're part of our own family. And then he moved on in the fifth chapter and said, the other group that we go out of our way to honor in the church are those who are lonely and those who are vulnerable and those who are normally left behind. Specifically, he talked about the widows and the, the single mothers. And we learned in that study that while a widow or a single mother should care for herself if she can provide for herself, and her biological family does have a responsibility to provide for her, but when she can't provide for herself and the biological family can't provide for herself, the church family that she is a part of is to step to the plate and care for her and, and honor her in her time of need. We also learned last week, as we finished the chapter, about how the church is different in the way it honors its church leaders. Well, in most of our society, society tends to mock leadership and undermine leadership. But in a church, it's tangibly different when people come into this building and when they're together because uh, in the church, we fight against gossip. 
we fight a, against slander of church leaders. And when we hear gossip, when we hear slander, we don't repeat it. We actually challenge it and say, hey, don't speak of our leaders that way. Because in the church, we honor our leaders. Now today, as we uh, begin the sixth chapter and just look at the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6, we find we continue on this theme of honor and how we as Christians honor other people. Except he's moving from honoring those who are inside the church to be, how do we honor those who are outside of the church? Specifically, in the one relationship that most of us spend our day working in. And that is our working relationship. As Christians, we should be known for honoring our boss, for honoring the man or the woman that we work for. Christians should be legendary for the quality of the work they produce. Christians should be legendary for the attitude of positiveness they have when they are on the job. And Christians are also to be legendary for the honor, respect, and reverence they have for the boss that employs them. These are all things that Paul is going to talk about in these first two verses. So, um, let's go ahead and, and jump into this. Before I actually get too deep into these verses, though, I think I want to just begin by talking about work in general. And the reason I say that is this. We live in a culture that is sort of demeaned work, where work is something that, you know, you actually want to get away from. You know, we work, we work. How do, how do we say this? I owe, I owe, I owe. So off to work I go, I go, I go. And why do I work? I work for the weekend when I don't have to work, when I can do my own thing. So work is sort of a generally negative thing in our culture. But biblically, you need to understand that work is actually quite a positive thing. Work is good. Do you realize that God created you to work? If you look in the scriptures, you discover that work was even in the world before sin was in the world. If you turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, which is on the top of your outline, incidentally, if you want to follow along, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam and Eve were the original farmers. And they were working before there was sin. And by the way, if you're a farmer, that automatically means you're doing hard work. Right? Yeah. Well, you have John Deere, or you have Case, so that makes it a little easier. But they didn't have John Deere. They didn't have Case. No matter what, it was going to be hard work when they were farmers. Now, when sin comes into the world, we, define, we, just, uh, we learn that sin actually makes work more frustrating. It says that thorns and thistles begin to come and fight against the work that Adam and Eve would do. So work is something we've originally been created to do. Work was in the world before sin was in the world. But sin, what it did was make work more frustrating. In fact, in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the, what we learn is that we will actually be working in the new creation. 
Some of you think that what's going to happen is we get to the new creation and we're going to spend it like eternity in retirement. Actually, we won't. We'll be working. There won't be sin. It'll be hard work. It'll be fulfilling work, but it will be work nevertheless. In fact, if you look at the Scriptures, the way the Scriptures describes the planet that we live on is that God created this planet is just chuck full of all kinds of resources. Think of it like Lego blocks so that we would build things with it. It's a resource tank for us to be able to work and produce good things to benefit other people. So work, it has a huge impact on our lives. Not only will we spend most of our living lives working for someone else, we will even spend eternity in work. In fact, what you discover is that work is probably the major way that you and I are to bring honor and fame to the name of Jesus Christ in this world. How we work will either bring honor to Jesus or it will bring dishonor to Jesus. Work is incredibly important. And so what Paul is going to do here in these first two verses is simply tell us how as Christians do we work for a non-Christian boss? And then he'll answer the questions, how do we work for a Christian boss? And that's essentially the entire message. How do we work to we bring honor to Jesus? So let's dive in in your outlines. Here's the first major point. How do I work for a non-Christian boss? And it says this in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Well, we're going to begin at the very beginning, and that's going to bring us onto sort of a little rabbit trail. It says, all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Well, here's the question here. Paul, you're talking about slavery. In fact, if you look at the NIV, the NIV even uses the term slavery. Let all who are slaves regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Why didn't Paul condemn slavery? I mean, we know what slavery is like. We all went to high school. We studied this. We know that slavery is when people went with ships to the continent of Africa and in the middle of the night they went into villages and they took families and they tore them out of their beds at night and they bound them in chains and they stuffed them into cargo holds of ships in subhuman conditions and they sailed them to another continent and there they tore families asunder so they would never see a wife, never see a child again. They used whips to beat and abuse and oppress and break the spirit of people. Paul, how can you condone slavery? You should be condemning slavery. In fact, you start to think about it. Why doesn't the Bible seem to condemn slavery? It just sort of accepts it and goes along with it in numerous parts of the Scriptures. Well, what I'd like to do, just to sort of get this whole thing framed correctly, is help you understand what slavery actually looked like in the Old Testament times. 
and what it actually looked like in the New Testament times. And then compare it to the American slavery that you and I are familiar with. Because once we understand what the slavery looked like in the biblical times, and we can help clarify some of the confusion we have with slavery in early American times. It will help us understand this passage much better. So let's begin in the Old Testament. Let me tell you what you need to know about the Old Testament and slavery. First of all, to be a slave in the Old Testament was certainly not the worst position that someone could be in. Slaves were often taken into families. You had somebody that worked as a slave in your home. Now, a slave in a home actually had a pretty good position. They became home managers. They became cooks. They served as craftsmen in the home. They even served as teachers for your children. Now, you know there's a positive relationship in there if you're having your slave teach your children the alphabet because you're entrusting into their hands their basic value system. In fact, uh, what happened in a slave in the Old Testament when they were adopted into a home and they served as a slave for a family, they often received food, shelter, and they even received a small salary. The worst position to be in in the Old Testament times and even in the New Testament times was not that of a slave. It was that of a day laborer. Those are people who uh, stayed in the city square. And the farmer would come into the city square in the beginning early hours of the day and he would say, you will go and you'll pick my cantaloupe for me and I'll agree to pay you this amount of money for the day. And they would work all day long at hard labor and then be paid by the farmer that they agreed to be paid whatever amount it was at the end of the day. But here's the thing. They went home that night not usually having any shelter, not usually having any home, not having any kind of security of a family to back them up because they were just a day laborer. That's all they received. Whereas slaves, they had all that naturally as being part of a family. How did someone become a slave in the Old Testament times or even into the New Testament times? Usually they were prisoners of war. That's the way the whole thing usually began. Other times, people would sell themselves into slavery simply because they needed the security of knowing that if they were a slave in a good family, they would be given food, shelter, and clothing, where they were struggling to find that on their own. Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery because of debt. Unlike today, that when you fault on debt, you can sort of go chapter 11 and, you know, stick your creditors. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. Uh, you still owed your creditors. In fact, you became a slave to your creditors until your debt was paid. Now, what's interesting, if you look in the Old Testament you find that even in the Mosaic law, God specified the rights of slaves. And the slaves didn't have too bad of a life. Most of these things I'm going to tell you about actually come out of Exodus 21. So if you want to look this up later, you can find most of this there. For instance, if you were a Jew and you had a Jewish slave, you were not able to keep your Jewish slave for longer than six years. But on the seventh year, you had to set him free. In fact, if you were a, a slave and you really liked your master and you loved your master 
and your master has treated you so well that you didn't want to leave your master, you could um, have your ear was put on a doorpost and they drove an awe through it. So it sort of deformed your ear, but that was a sign that you were a slave for life because you had voluntarily given yourself to your master to serve him for life. And some of you are thinking, well, why would somebody do that? It's because they found themselves treated so well by their master, they didn't want to leave. See, I told you slavery is in the Old Testament times, at least under Jewish law, is nothing like what we think about when we think of American slavery. It also tells us in Exodus 21 that if you abused your slave, they were set free. Slaves were given Sabbath rest. If you murdered your slave, you were punished for it because slaves had human rights. Had human rights. In fact, rabbinic literature of the day sort of said this mockingly, that if you were to hire or acquire a Jewish slave, you hired or acquired your own master. Now you think, wait a minute, I just had a slave. I didn't hire a master. But the simple mocking point of it was that slaves had so much rights by Jewish law <laughs> that it was like they weren't nearly as productive as you would be able to be under other cultures that were far from God. So, um, let me just mention this. Let's move from the Old Testament times and let's move into the New Testament times. What was slavery like just prior to the time of Christ? Well, let me just be honest and tell you that at times it was very barbaric. At times it was very cruel. And the Roman Empire, a lot of it was built on the back of slaves. Let's be honest about this. We're no longer under the Old Testament Mosaic Law. We're into sort of secular culture at this point. In fact, the Jewish or the Roman Empire had 50 to 60 million slaves in it. In a major city like Rome or Ephesus that this letter was written to, which is the fourth largest city in the empire, 30% of the population in those cities were slaves. Technically, according to Roman law, slaves had no rights. Slaves were called nothing more than tools. And yet you can, and you can definitely find a ton of atrocities that were committed against slaves in that time. One of the most famous was by Augustus. His slave was working with his pet quail, his bird, and accidentally killed his bird. So Augustus crucified his slave. Just barbaric, unhuman. Well, that's what slavery was like. But as you move into the time when the New Testament letters are written and the time of Jesus Christ, surprisingly what you find is that slavery was no longer nearly as barbaric. Slavery was actually in a major decline. At the time of, um, that the New Testament letter is written, few slaves remained slaves all the way until their death. 50% of the people who had become slaves were freed by their 30th birthday. Caesar Augustus was even enacting legislation at this time to curb the amount of emancipation of slaves that was taking place because so many people were releasing their slaves. Now, you say, why would you do that? Well, here's what they sort of found. <laughs> they liked the free market economy a little better. 
instead of having to pay for food, housing, clothing, shelter, just pay, my, pay a guy a wage and let him figure it out himself. And they like that better. So why should I have to pay to keep all these slaves? Pay him a salary and be done with it. And this is what's going on at this time. In fact, some of the ex-slaves at this point have developed such wealth with a lot of their ingenuity that their wealth is beginning to rival even the, the old money of the old, the money of old Romans themselves. You have wealth, you know, really wealthy ex-slaves that are on the same social class as these guys, which is just unheard of only a few years before. So slavery in the New Testament times is nothing like what we think of slavery in early American times. In fact, it's probably interesting to let you know that the kind of slavery that you studied in school, early American slavery, the Bible very clearly speaks against that. In fact, Paul even speaks very clearly against that right in this very letter of 1 Timothy. Look what he says here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, as he lists what are some of the great sins against God. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers. Some translations will say slave traders, because that's what it is. For those who take other human beings and rip them out of their bed at night and then sell them as slaves. That's some of the worst sins against God, is what Paul says. So, you need to understand that in the New Testament times, <clears throat> you find slaves. In one sense, you find some that are acting in lowly jobs, like custodians. But you also find slaves that are serving as CEOs of corporations, working for their masters in a very high-ranking job. You find slaves serving as high-ranking government officials. So when you see this idea of a master-slave relationship, probably the best way for you and I to think of it, it is simply like an employer-employee relationship like we have in modern America today. What it means is that when you have a master, you have somebody to whom you are responsible to somebody to whom you are accountable and to whom you owe your livelihood. That's what it means. We think of slave-master negatively. They thought of it neutrally. It just established the kind of relationship that existed. To give you an idea of how this is not negative, but it's actually sort of neutral, it just talks about the kind of relationship that exists, sort of like a boss and an employee, Jesus calls himself a servant of his father, a slave of his father. Because who does Jesus, uh, who's in charge of his life? His heavenly father. In fact, the scriptures tell us that we should think of ourselves as slaves, as servants of our heavenly father. Because who's in charge of our lives? God the father. Look what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. 
Live as people who are free, that is, we're not a slave, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or as living as slaves of God himself because he is our master. All right, that was my little rabbit trail. Now that we understand the issue of slavery and then how essentially it's just a matter of a boss and an employee relationship, and that's how we need to understand it, let's go back to this text and see what it tells us about how as Christians we are to live in an employee-employer relationship. Let all who are under the yoke as employees, bondservants, serve their own masters, that is, employers, as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. If you're taking notes, I want you to circle the two words, all honor. Earlier in chapter 5, we were told to honor widows. We were told to honor our leaders. But all of a sudden, he says, make sure you give your boss all kinds of honor. He modifies it. He says, you really go out of your way in all times and in all ways to honor your boss if you are an employee. And he says, regard your boss as worthy of all honor. Just so you know that word regard regard means your boss is worthy of all honor because of objective criteria, not because of internal feelings. That means you don't have to like your boss at all. But because they're simply your boss, you give them all honor in all ways as Christians. Your boss can be ugly. Your boss can be mean. Your boss can be grumpy. Your boss can even be bald. Okay, that was a joke. But you still give your boss honor at all times and in all ways at all things. Christians, when they work on the job, What is very different is the way they treat their boss with all kinds of honor. And they give their boss all kinds of respect. Most people mock their boss, disrespect their boss, talk negative about their boss behind their back. But Christians, we are to stand out as different. Because we do not mock our boss. We don't take advantage of our boss. We honor them at all times and in all ways. So how do we witness at work? How hard we work. The quality of our work is our witness. The attitude we have at work, a positive attitude, is a witness to Jesus Christ. We refuse to talk smack about our boss behind their back. You know how it is that everyone's working really hard when the boss is there, But all of a sudden, when the boss goes away, everybody goes to like half speed. But as Christians, the way we witness is we don't go to half speed. We keep working at full speed. Because the way we witness is through our work, by giving honor to our boss. You know how it is when the boss is there, they're working hard, but when the boss is gone, people start to take lots of coffee breaks, Longer smoke breaks. We're like, no, we don't do that. We're Christians. I may take a coffee break. I may take a smoke break. But I don't try and pat it 
I don't try and stretch it because my work is my witness. How I work is a statement about Jesus Christ. And the way I honor my boss is a statement about Jesus Christ. We think that the worst thing that can happen is I get in trouble with my boss. And I get reprimanded by my boss for being lazy at work or having a bad attitude at work. And Paul's like, getting reprimanded by your boss isn't the worst thing that can happen. What's worse than getting reprimanded by your boss if you have taken away the honor that should be given to Jesus Christ through your work. What happens is Jesus Christ is not being made famous by the quality, the integrity, the intensity, and the attitude you have while we are at work. Paul says some of these things, things to Titus. He says bond servants, which once again we know are slaves, but that really means employees. Employees are be to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. Go out of your way to please your boss. Not argumentative. Don't argue with your boss. Not pilfering. Don't try and steal from your boss. But showing all good faith so that in everything, why are we living this way on the job? We may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We work hard. We work hard to honor our boss because our work is our witness. Which means when we're at work, we stay off the cell phone because we're on work time, not on free time. When we're at work, we stay off YouTube because we're working for our boss, not for ourselves. When we're at work, we stay off social media because he didn't pay you to tweet. He didn't pay you to put a Facebook post. He didn't pay you to do an Instagram post. He paid you or she paid you to work. And how we work is a witness to how Jesus Christ changed our life. When our boss asks us to do a difficult job, because we're Christians, we don't talk back. We don't make excuses. We do the job and we get it done, and we do it well, and we do it with a great attitude. Because why? Our work is our witness. Here is our goal. Our goal is that we are such good employees, that we work so hard, that we have such a good attitude, and we always speak positively of our boss, that our boss goes, you know what, I need some more employees. I need more people just like you. Can I put my next help wanted ad in your church bulletin? I have to get more Christians. Because Christians are so different in the way they work. They witness through their work. And you see what happens is when you work that way, your boss says to you, what makes you so different? Everybody else I know talks about me behind my back, but you don't. You say, well, here's the deal. Um, Jesus changed my life. Can I tell you about him? What does your boss say? Tell me. I want to know what made you so different. Because we witness through our work. 
We honor our boss in little things. When you uh, go on trips, you can stay at expensive hotels, or you can honor your boss by staying at modest hotels to keep the expenses down. You can go out to super expensive restaurants, or you can try to say, you know, because I'm really about the company here, not just about spending money, I can be a little bit more frugal in my expenses. Because our goal is to adorn the doctrine of Jesus Christ and to make Jesus famous through our work. Now, this is all well and good. We've all got that down. But what happens when you have a difficult boss? You guys ever have those difficult bosses? Oh, yeah, I've had them too, where the boss tells you to do one thing and you get working on it, and about halfway through they change your mind, you go to the other thing, and then they change your mind back again. Or a boss that is just really grumpy and really irritable and very difficult to work with. And a lot of people are sort of talking smack about him or her behind their back. What are we supposed to do in those situations? Still keep a positive attitude? Well, this is what Peter says. Servants, once again talking about slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is, is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let me challenge your understanding of work. Work is not primarily about a paycheck. Work is primarily about your witness. It's about how you live for Jesus Christ. It is the platform upon which you will spend most of your day and to witness for most of your day. So once you understand that work is primarily about witness, not about an easy job, not about a fun job, then all of a sudden, it reframes how you deal with that difficult boss. You see, if you have an, a good boss and an easy boss, it's very easy to honor them at work. It's very easy to bring glory to Christ that way by honoring them at work. But if you have a difficult boss that nobody else honors besides you, then your witness is more clearly seen, isn't it? Because nobody would honor them, but you would honor them because you're seeking to honor Jesus. And people know because you treat them differently. Because work is the way we witness. Well, that's the main point of the first verse. How do we honor a non-Christian boss? Now, Paul moves on to how we honor a Christian boss. We honor a non-Christian boss by doing work that is really high quality, really good intensity, really good attitude, and not talking smack about our boss. And this is what he says about a Christian boss. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. 
apparently what has happened in the church of Ephesus is that you have bosses and employees in the same church, listening to the same sermon, singing the same songs. Their kids are in the same Wednesday night Awana program, and they're in the same fellowship area drinking coffee after church. And while the reality should be that all the employees should be giving all honor and all kinds of respect to the boss, what has happened is there's a little bit of lack of respect that has started to crop up. And they're starting to treat their bosses more like peers. You could just picture it. The Christian employee that comes in a little late to work, he says to his boss, I'm sorry, it was a really great quiet time. I was reading my Bible and I couldn't put it down. You understand, don't you? Or the Christian employee that says, I know I only have two weeks of vacation, but there's this three-week church mission trip. You're a brother in Christ. You want me to go on a mission trip, don't you? And what he's starting to do is take advantage of that relationship, trying to use his Christian brotherhood to leverage his boss and disrespect his boss. Maybe they're even beginning to misunderstand some Scripture verses themselves. Like, let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the, uh, the, the slave or the employee is saying, You see, really, there's really slave nor free. We're all really just the same, brother. And they're misunderstanding that. That verse is saying that when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what role you play in life or what social status you have in Jesus Christ. Anybody can come to Him. But after you come to Jesus Christ, your role in life doesn't cease to exist. You're still either an employee or a boss. And that relationship structure remains. So, what Paul is saying is if you have a boss and you're at work, you always do your best to give that boss all honor in every way, whether it's the quality of the work you do or the attitude with which you do your work. And if you have a Christian boss, you don't ever take advantage of that situation, but you actually go above and beyond the call of duty to benefit your Christian boss even more. Let me give you an example. Say, for instance, um, you work for a Christian boss. You make a modest paycheck in your Christian boss's company. And your Christian boss has a, a project, a special project that needs to get done, he's under pressure for, on the weekend. And according to contract, well, you would get paid time and a half. You say to yourself, well, I really had plans for this weekend, things I wanted to do. I'm not too sure if the extra uh, financial bonus in my salary is really worth it. I know my boss needs me. I, I know we're in a tough situation, and it's going to be a big bunch of penalties if he doesn't get the job done, but you know, that's really his issue, not mine. Paul says that's not the way we conduct ourselves as Christians. As Christians, we say, you know, my boss needs me, even if a time and a half isn't necessarily 
all I would hope it would be. It may not feel like it's financially worth it for me, but I want to benefit my Christian brother. I want to bless my Christian boss. Even if he makes a bunch of extra money by getting the job done on time, you know what? I'd rather that extra money go into the hands of a brother in Christ who will tithe on it, who will give it, and who will invest those resources for the kingdom. So I'll go above and beyond to honor him or to honor her. Now, apparently this has been a problem for a while in the city of Ephesus, where employees have not been honoring their employers in the church. Now, you can find this talked about in the book of uh, Ephesians, which is actually a letter to the same church that Paul wrote earlier in his career. And look what he says here to employees. Bond servants or employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ or as being an employee or a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or he is free. Let me just decode some of those words for you in phrases here. He says, um, Employees, obey your masters with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling at that time is a colloquialism that simply means profound respect. You give tons of respect and tons of honor to your boss. And you work for him with a sincere heart. What that means is you genuinely care about the success of the company. Some people just work for a paycheck. That's what they care about. But as a Christian employee, you genuinely want the company to succeed. That is your first and foremost interest. Now, he says here... Uh, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. This means that even when your boss is not looking, you continue to work and give your absolute best. And he says this, remember that in one sense you are working for an earthly master, but in another sense you are working for Jesus Christ, your heavenly master. Your earthly master may not be watching you every moment on the job, but your heavenly master, Jesus Christ, is seeing you every moment on the job. And we aim to please him in our work. In addition, your earthly master may not always uh, give you recompense for some of the good things you do on the job. But recognize this. Jesus Christ your heavenly master always sees every good thing you do on the job. And he will recompense you, if not in this life, for sure in eternity. No good deed will go unrewarded. Because our master Jesus Christ sees and knows all. Well, how do we witness at work? It's really actually quite simple. The quality, intensity, and honor that we give to our boss 
how we work should make us stand out from all the other employees in the company. The quality, the attitude, the positive nature that we have, why we are as Christians. Now, what happens if a boss is difficult? Do we blow him off? No, we continue to honor him or we continue to honor her, knowing that having a good attitude towards a difficult boss makes our witness even more visible on the job to others. What if we have a Christian boss? Do we ever take advantage of that relationship? Absolutely not. We work even harder for a Christian boss, knowing the one we're benefiting is a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for the privilege of working. Thank you that you created us to work. You've given us the, the ability to do things productive that would bless other people with our work. We want to confess that many of us have bought into the work ethic of the world, a work ethic that is sometimes lazy, a work ethic that oftentimes doesn't have quality, a work ethic that talks negatively about our bosses when they're not looking. We want to confess that and ask your forgiveness. We ask that we would witness through our work this week and for the weeks to come. Help us to stand out as Christian employees by what we do and the attitude with which we do it and the zealousness of our heart to please our earthly masters, knowing that in doing that, we are witnessing for Jesus Christ and will be rewarded by Him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.